0: You may have seen the news this week, although it did not necessarily make the headlines. The Barnabas Fund, an international Christian relief agency, is scurrying to airlift some 3,400 Christians out of Sudan in the face of increased persecution. This is in addition to the 5,000 that that particular agency has already airlifted. You see, Sudan is 98% Muslim, and the president of Sudan, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, I believe like Hitler, evil incarnate, has vowed to create, quote, a 100% Islamic constitution without communism, secularism, or Western influences, which of course includes Christianity. The refugees will be taken to South Sudan, a newly formed country, uh, just became a nation in July of 2011, two years ago, They will go there to join the over 2,000 refugees who have already fled Sudan. Oh, and in the civil war between the North and the South over the past two decades, which included ethnic cleansing, in addition to droughts and famines, it's estimated that 2 million people have died in this war-torn country. Now, I would be stretching the truth to say that this is a war between Muslims and Christians, but Christians have certainly been intentionally targeted by the Sudanese government. This most recent news caught my eye because my son is working in South Sudan with Samaritan's Purse, which is there feeding tens of thousands of refugees in several different camps, one of the only organizations, secular or religious, to be doing so. Might be interested to know that one of our own elders, Ken Isaacs, who heads up the projects department at Samaritan's Purse, to include the relief effort for these hundreds of thousands of refugees, recently gave a report of these atrocities. To Congress with a recommended course of action. you can read it, it's on the Internet. SP.'s work in South Sudan is, is sensitive. So I didn't even mention the places where they are. There have been numerous churches, schools and even hospitals bombed, sensitive, you say, even dangerous, as they seek to care for people in great need to include our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then, of course, there is the ongoing conflict in Egypt. That country is in political and military turmoil. But what is often missed or ignored is the rising persecution against the country's estimated 10 million professing Christians. Now, I'm not going to get into the discussion about what flavor of Christianity they're Coptics. So I'm not going to get into that. Since that country's most recent unrest, Sixty churches have been burned or severely damaged. Christian businesses, Christian-owned businesses, have been marked with red graffiti, identifying them and indicating, I suppose, that it's open season. Sort of an interesting and ironic reversal of Exodus 12 when God's people in Egypt marked their own homes with red blood. So the avenging angel would pass over them. Now they're being highlighted, targeted for persecution. Then there's the ongoing civil war in Syria. I saw in the news just yesterday that we've sent yet another warship, I think that makes the fourth, to the area because of the alleged use of chemical weapons. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of, of all of this, but I did do some research and. Found that in the two year civil war, it's estimated by the UN that 100,000 people have been killed. That compared to 2 million in Sudan, I guess we're okay with the people of Africa killing each other. Of course, this conflict in Syria has spilled over to persecution against Christians, many of whom have fled to Lebanon and beyond. Millions. I've also reported to you about the imprisonment of American Christian pastor Saeed Abedini, who was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced uh, for eight years in Iran's worst prison, where he has been tortured since last September simply for sharing the gospel. The truth is, and none of this should come as a surprise to us. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul said in in Philippians 1 that we looked at last January, "For For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. In other words, not only do you get the incredible privilege, the gift of the believing in Jesus, but you also get the gift, the privilege of suffering for Jesus. And now we, we, now we get that. We understand that Christians suffer, don't like it, but we get it. So, so what do we do when it happens? We just buck up, right? Right? We, we just put up with it because we know something better is coming, right? Well, well, not exactly. Paul had some things to say about that in Philippians. In fact, he says lots of things about suffering in most of his letters, one of which is Colossians, where, where he actually takes things a bit further today. We, we know by now that Paul is in prison in, in Rome. Colossians is one of his prison epistles along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. He, like Pastor Abedini, is in prison as he writes simply for preaching the gospel. And back when he wrote Philippians in in chapter 1, he spoke of his imprisonment for the cause of the gospel. And he said some rather challenging things to us about this imprisonment, this suffering for the cause of Christ. He he actually said he was able to rejoice in his suffering. Now, we don't use rejoice in suffering in the same sentence. Paul did all the time. He was actually able to rejoice in the midst of suffering because he heard about the Philippians' continued participation in the gospel. Uh, Okay, so so he was able to rejoice because those not in prison were still preaching the gospel. Okay, so that's kind of cool. We we, kind of get that. But, but, but then he spoke of his imprisonment actually turning out for the greater progress of the gospel. Namely, that there were these guards, and not just any guards, these were the praetorian guard, emperor's guards, who were hearing the gospel, some were actually believing. Okay, so he was making the best of a very bad situation still preaching the gospel even to those who imprisoned him. We kind of get that. That's kind of cool. But, but, but then he spoke of his imprisonment, giving those not in prison more courage to speak uh, the gospel. Hey, if Abedini can do it, I can do it. Has that done that for you? Well, if Paul can do it, we can do it. Oh, Okay. I'm, I'm still I'm still okay with all of that, but th- but then he he rejoiced that some with misplaced motives, seeking just to get him in more trouble, were preaching the gospel. And Paul actually says, "In this, I rejoice. I rejoice that that the, the gospel is advancing, even in my suffering. Even if they're preaching, it is causing me more trouble. That's a bit more." challenging, but we kind of get it still kind of tied to the gospel. But then he actually had the daring to say, listen, I think I'm going to be released from prison, but even if I'm not, eh, that's okay. Because for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yeah, he actually said that. He actually said that dying for Christ is gain. Even if they kill me, even if I become a martyr, that's okay. That's gain. That's better. Why? Because then I get to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of challenging. I mean, do you know that those in the early church actually took this idea of suffering and even dying for Jesus? Do you know that they actually took it seriously? I mean no they did. There were those in the early church who actually ran toward martyrdom counting it an honor to die for Christ. There's this guy named this early church father named Origen. Apparently when he was a, a teenager still living at home Persecution had broken out against the church, and the persecutors had showed up in town. And they guy, he's a teenager, and he actually wanted to run out and be persecuted, even martyred for Jesus. His mom didn't want him to, so she hid his clothes. <laughs> Apparently he was underdressed for the occasion. And it irritated him, because long after that, he wrote about that. He wanted to run to <laughs> martyrdom. That's kind of difficult to swallow. Come on, let's be honest. This is just us American Christians here, mostly. Let's just be honest. We like it here a bit too much. Maybe I am living my best life now. Okay, I'm okay with going to heaven, but but do I have to go like right now? I like it here. I don't really want to leave. I wonder how those persecuted Christians in the Middle East, I wonder how they think about heaven. Uh, Okay, when pressed to really think about it, you know, it's like Sunday. As followers of Jesus, okay, dying and being with Jesus is better, so I can rejoice in my sufferings, even my death, because of what awaits That's all a bit challenging. Rejoicing in the midst of suffering because there are some results. There's a result of the advance of the gospel. There's actually rejoicing in death because of the certainty that we will see Jesus. Okay, I I can get that most days. But then Paul just couldn't leave well enough alone. He had to take it a bit further. You see... He resulted in the results of suffering, advance of the gospel, certainty of seeing Jesus, but then he had to write Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 1, he says some things that have baffled Christians for centuries and, frankly, will baffle you today and likely challenge you in your very comfortable life. You see, he actually seems to rejoice in suffering itself. He actually seems to have this attitude, bring it on. Colossians chapter 1. I want to remind you that one of the r- primary reasons that Paul is writing to the church in Colossians is because he's received word that some false teachers ha- ha- had made their way to town, don't know a lot about them other than that their teaching somehow diminished the supremacy and sufficiency of, of, of Jesus. Paul is going to, you can't do that with Paul. And so he's going to deal with them directly in chapter 2. But, but, but for now, in chapter 1, he, 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 he wrote or he recited, whichever one it was, this great hymn. I want to just, just right out of the shoots, I want you to understand, Jesus is it. He ascribed highest glory to Christ. We found that Jesus is supreme over creation, and he's supreme over the new creation called the church. And then we saw that this Son of God, who is supreme, uh, uh, in whom all the fullness of deity lived, this Jesus reconciled us to God through the blood of His cross. Jesus bought the church with His blood. Talking about the church then, last part of verse 23, Paul reminded us that he, Paul, was made a minister of this church message of reconciliation, this message called the gospel. You look at this last week, but back at Second Corinthians, that he'd written sometime before this. In, in chapter 5, he said it this way. Now all these things, this, this idea of being a new creation in Christ are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I know there's a big debate about who the S is. I don't know if it's Paul and a mouse in his pocket or maybe Paul and Timothy who happened to be there when he was writing 2 Corinthians. But I happen to believe us means like us because Paul and Timothy aren't here anymore. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, don't miss that, We have the responsibility to share the word of reconciliation. But you got to know something this morning it's going to cost you. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God provided reconciliation through his son, and he has committed that message of reconciliation to us. Now... Now we remember when Paul was made a minister or servant of the gospel. Remember that? His name was Saul. He was an avowed enemy of the church. Book of Acts tells us he was present when Stephen was stoned, even approving of his death. He became then the foremost persecutor of the church, going from city to city, searching out followers of the way. That's what they were called, the way. Uh, To persecute them, uh, to bind them, to throw them in prison, uh, to to bring them to trial. And then he wanted to be there to vote for the death penalty. Persecution. He was on his way to Damascus. Uh, That, by the way, is the capital of Syria. (laughs) Because persecution against Christians has been going on for a very long time in that city. Uh, To do the same thing, persecute Christians, when Jesus intercepted him. Remember that? Acts chapter 9, after knocking him to the ground, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that's interesting. By persecuting the church, Jesus says, Saul, you're persecuting me. We understand that now, you see, from Colossians. We understand that the church is the body of Christ. And by attacking the body of Christ, you are, in essence, attacking its head. You're attacking Jesus. You see, there is this vivid, vital, organic connection between the head and the body, between Christ and the church. It's an important lesson for us. Don't mess with the church, because if you do, you're messing with Jesus, so Jesus tells Saul, I want you to get up and I want you to go into Damascus and you'll be told what to do. Later we find that Saul, who became Paul, would be a chosen instrument to bear Jesus' name to the Gentiles. And Not only is he going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul, it's going to cost you. You're going to suffer much for my name. You who persecuted the church are now going to be the persecu- The persecuted. That was the plan. He was a minister, more literally a servant of, uh, uh, of the church. And he's going to suffer doing it. Now up to this point, kind of in this story, we, we may not like that servants suffer, but we kind of get it. But then Paul writes these amazing, baffling words as he continues. Look at Colossians chapter 1, one verse today. Verse 24, he just said, I was made a minister of the church. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. No, what? Some of you didn't know that was in the Bible. What does that mean? I rejoice in my suffering. He said that before. He said that in Philippians, okay. But, but why? There's a result. What's the end game, Paul? What, what's the result? What's the reason that you're rejoicing now in your suffering? Well, it's for the sake of the Colossians. Kind of interesting. He was rejoicing in his suffering for a church he didn't start. He'd never been to Colossae. Chapter 2 tells us they'd never even seen his face. But they were believers. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he rejoiced that his suffering was for them. But, 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 But why did he rejoice in his suffering for them? This is the baffling part. What is this taking my share of suffering? What is this? Taking my share in suffering to fill up what's lacking in, uh, in Christ's affliction. Before we get to that, let me give you the outline of the text. Now, I'm very excited to show you this outline, verses 24 to 29, because I, and I want to show you that because it all goes together, and that's what I intended to get to this morning. If you're new to the church, you'll find this is not all that strange. Verse 24, Paul's suffering for Christ, Paul's a servant of Christ, and then Paul's proclamation of Christ. We're just going to look at that first point. You see, it's, it's very difficult. It's very challenging. It's a very baffling verse. Now, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I, I do my share in, on behalf of His body, make sure we understand, remember remember, body? That's the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul rejoiced in his suffering, which we see first was for the Colossians' sake. Now, certainly he was talking, as he was talking about suffering, he was he was talking about his current difficulties, the sufferings associated with his current imprisonment. But we could also read, we won't, we could read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he lists all those things that he suffered for the cause of Christ, things like imprisonments and beatings and stonings and hunger and thirst and, and all like that, all for the sake of the gospel. Then he, says, he even says it, for example, in chapter 2 verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are in Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face. It, it was a great struggle that Paul was facing. Great struggle on behalf of these churches in Colossae and Laodicea. But, but, but again, this suffering was for the sake of a church he'd never been to. So that's kind of weird. How? How did he suffer for them? Well, maybe it was because he preached the gospel, Epaphras heard it, he preached it to them, they were saved, and now Paul was suffering for preaching that gospel that eventually got them saved. Maybe he was suffering for them indirectly. Could be, maybe not. Most think he goes on to explain how. In my flesh, that is, in my physical body, in my physical suffering, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Stop there. In some way, Paul saw his physical sufferings as on behalf of the body of Christ. Now, now remember that in the, this letter to Col- the Colossians, we've seen that the body of Christ, the church, speaks of the universal church, the universal Body of believer, believers made up of all believers at all times. So I want you to get that. So, since the local church at Colossae and, and frankly the local churches in Boone, one of which is Alliance Bible Fellowship, is part of the universal, universal church, in some way, Paul's suffering was for their, their sake and ours. Paul suffered for us. How? Well, because his suffering was his share. We'll miss those words. His share of what? It was his sharing in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? This is the baffling challenge. We've got to look very closely at this. First thing we have to understand is that word filling up, it's the only place that this particular word appears in the entire New Testament. The word seems to mean filling up in response to. It's got an additional suffix, uh, prefix added to it. Filling up in response to. I know that's grammar, but listen. We put all of that together. Paul seems to have chosen a very specific word. Some suggest he even made it up. My suffering in the flesh for your sake on behalf of the church is for filling up in response to... What is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? One scholar translates it this way that I trust deeply says, I am filling up in order to complete what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Wow. Now, what does that mean? One thing that we can be sure that it is not, it is not as if the suffering of Christ on the cross was somehow lacking in the price paid for our redemption. That Christ's death on the cross was somehow lacking in providing atonement for our sins. Christ's work was fully sufficient to redeem and reconcile. This is what he's been saying in chapter 1. Fully sufficient to deal with our sin problem. All of Scripture is clear on this point. When he died on the cross, the last thing that he said was what? It is finished. It's done. Nothing else to do. Read through the book of Hebrews. makes clear that Jesus' work is done, complete, once for all. It's so good. It's so done. He sat down at the right hand of God. Nothing else to be done for our salvation. You might also be interested to know that the word afflictions, it's a very specific word, is never used to speak of Christ's work uh, of suffering on the cross. Never. It's a very different word. So very clearly, I want to just lay that to rest. It is not as if Christ's work was deficient or just a start of uh, uh, what needed to be done to redeem humankind. It's not like Paul is saying, listen, Jesus started the suffering. Now you need to complete it in order to be saved. That's not what it means. Paul says here, though, he is doing his share in what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Lots of discussion. Let me just cut right to the chase. Paul is suffering for Christ in regard to the afflictions that pertain to Christ as he is proclaimed in the world. As Christ is proclaimed, there will be resulting affliction. That's what Paul was doing. He was proclaiming Christ, and that proclamation cost him. Jesus told him it would when he called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's going to cost you. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul says, in doing so, I am filling up in Christ's afflictions. You see, Paul understood that the first coming of Christ inaugurated what is called the last days. And that is described throughout the New Testament as a time of intense suffering. And it was held by the Jews early on and then the early church that there was, now I need you to get this, that that there there was allotted to us a certain amount of suffering to be endured by God's people, not for redemption, not for redemption, but before Christ could come, either the first time or the second time. Suffering is required of God's people. Yes, it it perfects us. Yes, it matures us. But it's beyond that. I want you to think of it this way. There's a big allotment, a required amount, of a quota of suffering that must be endured. I know that sounds a little bit crazy. But Paul says, I've done my share in filling up what is necessary for the afflictions of Christ's body. Consider, for example, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. John writes the book of Revelation and he has taken uh, up up to heaven and he sees some things that, that will happen. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. I I looked, there was an altar, and under the altar were the souls of those who had been slain because of the gospel. Paul was there. Origen wanted to be there. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We're here because they killed us. How long till you go take care of this problem? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. There seems to be this idea of a certain number of martyrs to be completed before the end comes, before Jesus returns on his white horse, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, executing judgment. So, most biblical scholars agree. They they discuss this a lot. In fact, one of the books that I have gave five possible different explanations for this verse, but all of them end up in the same place. Here it is. God has both appointed and apportioned suffering to His people. Now we get the appointed part. It has been granted for us not only to believe, but also we, we've received the privilege uh, of suffering for His sake. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute me also, uh, persecute his followers also. All who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We get that. But the implication here seems to be as we suffer, we are doing our share, growing in maturity, certainly, but we are Doing our share, enduring for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his body. What seems then to be lacking, what seems then to be that needs to be filled up are the afflictions and sufferings that are necessary to be completed as God's kingdom faces opposition from the dominion of darkness. Remember in in verse 13 of this chapter, he says, you have been rescued. You've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. And those, those kingdoms are in conflict. One author, again, another one I respect, said it this way. Jesus, the Messiah, has suffered on the cross. Now his people, the members of his body, had their quota of affliction to bear. And Paul, listen, was eager to absorb as much as possible of this in his own flesh. I want to do my share. Knowing, by the way, that his current afflictions were not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. So, going somewhere with all of this. Here are my questions. Sudan, Iran, Egypt, Lebanon, pretty much the entire Middle East. You can move further east to the Far East, certainly China. Christians are suffering greatly for their faith. And here we are in the very comfortable U.S. avoiding it at all costs. If the early church was mistaken in running to martyrdom, are we not also mistaken in fleeing it? Fly under the radar and be an incognito Christian, it might cost me. We even, we're even in this country teaching the heresy that God wants you happy and wealthy. I don't teach that elsewhere. Where in the world do we get that? It's not in the Bible. Many today won't open their mouths for the cause of Christ for fear of a little ridicule. You know, Christians are so backward, behind the times. They're uneducated. They're ignorant. They're bigoted. They're... They're, they're, they're arrogant, they're exclusive, they're intolerant. These accusations are being hurled our way in increasing measure, and we resist, we hunker down, we, we hide. We close our mouths. So here's another question. Are we doing our share in suffering for the cause of Christ, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We live in a country of relative religious freedom. We live in relative prosperity. We live in a country where we can make pretty much what we want from life, not prejudice and all that notwithstanding. So, I wonder when we get to heaven if the tables will turn just a bit. If those who have really suffered for the cause of Christ, who have little and have been persecuted much, I wonder if they will be rewarded much. And conversely, we who have much and have suffered little, I wonder if we will be rewarded little. I just wonder. I remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, another one of these um, prison epistles, as he considered the things that the world clings to so tightly. Whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now listen, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Oh, All of a sudden, maybe those who ran toward martyrdom weren't so crazy after all. I told you this was a challenging text. You see, we hear it, this widely held interpretation, and we go, really? I didn't even know this was in the Bible. That, that, that's what this means? That can't be right. And our brothers and sisters around the world hear this text, and I want to suggest they're encouraged. I am suffering for the cause of Christ, just like Paul. I'm taking my share and filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the church. Just wonder let me close with these words of encouragement from Paul 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the context of suffering he writes for all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God therefore we do not lose heart though our outer man <laughs> that we prize so highly Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light afflictions is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. Stand for prayer.